the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Tuesday, the 15th of June. Is this the uh, is this the Ides of June? I'm not so sure about that. We'll have to look into that later. That'll be a project for our research department once we get one. <laughs> and it's Craig Roberts saying hello and welcome. Good to have you with us for this edition of Lifeline. Hey, before we get down to cases today, let me say a hearty thank you. And I, I, th- I guess congratulations are in order uh, for the wonderful, spectacular job that so many KFAX listeners did in our partnering with Cross International last week, we were able to provide rescues for over 400 children. Isn't that simply amazing? You think about so many of these kids that have been um, suffering and dealing with everything from the aftermath of COVID-19. And of course, we focused a lot on the impact of the double whammy hurricane season, back-to-back two major hurricanes that devastated many parts of Central America, including Guatemala, Nicaragua, and uh, to see so many folks sacrificially step up to the plate and help rescue some of these kids, uh, just absolutely heartwarming. So again, God bless you for your effort. Um, Your sacrifice uh, does not go um, unheeded, and uh, with that, Again, thank you so much for your partnership in um, changing lives and working with we here at KFAX and our friends at Cross International to make a difference in the world around us. All right, much to talk about on today's program. I want to get down to um, a story as we kind of catch up on a few things here um, related to um, a story that's hit the news perhaps not getting widespread coverage, but that's why you're smart, you're here, so we talk about the stories that others are afraid to handle. Now, let me start by saying we are frequently lectured by the far left on the importance of following the science. From COVID to climate change to even nuclear power, follow the science is the mantra, and I guess at many levels it's a nice amount of wisdom. But that said, when it comes to gender dysphoria, uh, those on the left seem to conveniently dismiss following the science. And instead, um, instead of what is settled medical science, suddenly becomes fluid, it's debatable, it's up for interpretation. Witness, for example, the story of Jonathan Copel. He is a Louisiana high school teacher, and his name hit the papers late last month after objecting to his school's gender theory curriculum. Let's get some more insights now as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, always a treat to have you join us on the program. And and this is undoubtedly a story where you could say the left seems to have abandoned the notion of following the science, instead wishing to enter into the land of make-believe. Tell us what's going on here. 
Yeah, I tell you, Craig, this unfortunately um, of a, all too typical of what we're going to be seeing across America. Uh, it's important to notice that uh, we're not talking about uh, a school district in California. We're talking about uh, a school district in Louisiana and a teacher in Louisiana. That's where he's objecting uh, to this school district, not hypothetically, but actually uh, putting in this uh, incredible new application called BrainPop, their identity and personal pronouns. And this teacher just couldn't, you know, just uh, couldn't just uh, take this sitting down um, and uh, really spoke up and about um, how counterproductive and potentially harmful this may be. I mean, studies show that children who are dealing with gender identity dysphoria um, should not be encouraged to, to pursue that, but rather to find out why they have those feelings, to reconcile those feelings, and avoid going down that path, which statistically, uh, for many, does not end well. And let, let's talk a bit about that, because uh, this is a, from a scientific standpoint, it certainly is a, a uh, notable, treatable, diagnosable condition. And, and sadly, instead of addressing this from the standpoint of helping these kids deal with the confusion, we seem to be contributing to it. And you have to wonder at the end of the day, I mean, uh, this suddenly turns classrooms and young children into some sort of a, a social science experiment, it seems to me. I mean, aren't there multiple layers of danger here? Oh, there, there really are. In fact, we, Pacific Justice, had defended a family to get their daughter back. Their teenage daughter was taken by social workers and was uh, because the daughter thought that she might want to be a boy. And um, we successfully got the daughter given back to the family instead of the procedure the government of California. We're glad, especially because the daughter uh, then said, eventually said, you know what, I changed my mind. I don't want to be a boy. It, it's so fluid, these feelings. So, um, and these children who do go down this path, Craig, it's, it's, it's statistically most unfortunate the their 30th birthday. Uh, because of depression leading often to suicide or drug overdose. Um, it doesn't solve mental uh, issues. Um, and in fact, many of these are actually bipolar who really need to be medicated and given uh, given counseling instead of having uh, these uh, this to their body, which will have long-term uh, medical and statistical ramifications. And I can, there, there's so many, I, I can't even go into the whole, we had a doctor um, discussing this on a program we just came out with recently, talking about the uh, transformation and, and the need for discussion about the transgender movement, and it is very alarming. Where is this going to wind up? I mean, I, I hate to think about sort of the nth degree um, in terms of just how far out of control this can become. Certainly, if it's an issue here in a state like California, as you alluded to in your opening remarks, uh, my goodness, if this has crept into more conservative states uh, like Louisiana, you can see it spreading throughout more conservative states. And suddenly we've got this this free for all going on where all of a sudden science is completely denied and we're kind of, you know, open to uh, whatever level of interpretation seems to be convenient and worse so teachers that hopefully are taught and trained to teach children the truth are instead like this teacher from louisiana put in this very um, unenviable position of being forced to teach curricula that they know flies in the face of proven science 
It, it, it really does. Uh, Illinois just came out with a, an announcement. They're going to begin a very radical uh, sex education program that falls right along the lines of, of encouraging uh, gender identity dysphoria and uh, helping even to facilitate it. It's, uh, then we've got, you know, Oregon, we've got two teachers who are representing there and then possibly fired because on their own private web website, they said they didn't think that it was it was uh, good for to have policies allowing teenage boys to go into girls' uh, locker rooms. Uh, and then you have states banning counseling. A number of states like California, New Jersey, and Oregon and others have actually banned the ability for someone to get counseling to understand why they have those feelings and to reconcile those feelings. So it's, uh, there's, there's multiple layers here. Uh, we need the, the good news that are red states. Uh, we have been working with them. They're passing laws, uh, protecting, especially protecting children uh, and uh, the curriculum programs. Uh, work needed to be done. And, uh, and of course, it'd be, it'd be great to have the right direction at the federal level, which we presently don't have. Yeah, and that really seems to be maybe an important step. I mean, it's sad when you have to talk about getting Congress to pass a law that encourages um, public educators to tell the truth, but it seems that this is the the arena we're headed in. And I get the fact that they're trying to be socially sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But again, at the end of the day, is the public classroom really the venue for these kinds of conversations? And, you know, if a child is dealing with these issues, well, a lot a child to be able to receive the necessary counseling and I suppose he or she can make a decision for themselves when they become um, an adult but in the meanwhile for, for parents to encourage this I mean it, it, it not only sets up I think the potentiality of even um, unintentionally pushing children in a certain direction but the confusion that it sets up for everybody involved just seems to go beyond the pale and the fact that we have to even discuss getting Congress or getting the courts involved in something like this of what ought to be clear-cut, logical, scientific approach to this subject matter is just, well, it's appalling because it's perhaps demonstrative of just how slippery a slope we seem to be headed down. Yeah, and and people need to realize, like states like California have already passed and required this now to be pushed at all grade levels through the California Healthy Youth Project and uh, legislation and other uh, measures uh, at all grade levels at all public schools in California, whether you like it or not. Um, that is the mandate. Other states are, like Illinois, are adopting similar mandates for all their public schools. Uh, this is a very, very serious, and now is just a, is a great time for parents uh, for our other reasons too. But to be really taking a second look at alternatives in, in education for their children. Yeah, and I know a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot of, but there are parents who kind of reel at that notion uh, based on the argument that, gee, Craig, you know, there's only so much money available <laughs> with on our family budget. And since we don't get an opportunity to opt out of the portion of our taxes that go to pay for public education, it's almost as if we end up having to pay twice, once through the government. And then second, if we ch- choose to put our child through a, a private or parochial school, then we have to pay tuition there as well. And, and it does seem to be unfair but you have to realize you get exactly one shot 
at raising your children correctly. And if you miss that opportunity, unfortunately, it doesn't roll around again. But the potential consequences can be there for a lifetime, if not an eternity. So um, the critical decisions, uh, no doubt, the parents are having to make. And it's, um, it's a critical time. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer following the story from Pacific Justice Institute. More information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 516 from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 520 here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. I, I, I must admit... I really appreciate, even envy at a level, in a good way, (laughs) book authors. Never wrote one myself, although needless to say, over the years I have interviewed tens of thousands of authors, and I've always been amazed at their gift, their discipline, and frankly the hard work that they do on our behalf. Nonfiction writers especially must know their stuff, do the research, tell the story, and the rest of us, well, we get to read their efforts, and benefit. Witness, for example, what we're learning from a new book that is kind of pulling back the shield on what had been um, sort of accepted uh, belief in relationship to the impact of a Supreme Court decision and the issue of life in America. If I said to you the phrase... Roe versus Wade, you would probably, particularly a long-term listener to this program, would instantly know what I'm referencing. But if I spoke to you about Doe versus Bolton, I would suspect you probably couldn't tell me much about it. And yet, as we peel back the layers of this pro-life onion, we begin to realize that of these two decisions, while Roe versus Wade gets all the attention... It really is the impact of them two side by side, and especially so in Doe versus Bolton that has brought us to the state of affairs we are at today. And most importantly, can, in understanding these two evil twins, shed some light on what we can do to reverse the trend. Joining me now is the author of the newly released Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, how the Supreme Court unleashed medical killing newly published and available through Amazon. He is the um, involved with the National Right to Life Committee as a Western Regional Director for many, many years, and always a privilege to have us uh, joined by Brian Johnston. Brian, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Greg. It's always good to be back on with you. And uh, you know, you know as much as any other just how important the abortion issue is for our nation. You also know how distorted presented, and that is particularly because Roe versus Wade, as you now know, actually completely false. Very few people understand that, but it's known and documented, and very few it's publicly known and documented that it was two decisions, as you mentioned. While Roe dealt with the laws of Texas, the laws of Georgia. They heard them twice, and the second they heard it, they decided to conjoin the decisions. So literally that means they are joined together at the hip, you might think. Like a, like a 
what they call the, the twin, the conjoined twins. But both of these decisions overrode the laws of all the states. Every state in the nation said, you know, that's, that's a baby. That's a human baby. And even progressive states like California, while well, they had some liberalized laws, after 20 weeks in California, 22 in New York, 25 in Massachusetts, they said, no, you can't kill this kid. Yet those two decisions on January 22nd, 73, overturned every state's laws. So that's why it's an important issue, and the listeners of the KFAX know it's an important issue. But as you pointed out, very few understand how it works, and that Doe versus Bolton is the one with the real power, and that power is literally given solely to the abortionist. The abortionist is told, and the very famous, again, folks who've been around the pro-life debate know that there's a health exception if the woman's life or health is in danger. And Ackerman goes on, and he defines the health as being the woman's age, her psychological feelings, her social standing. And he literally tells the doctor any of these factors can relate to health. And that gives the license for unlimited abortion throughout pregnancy. Nothing wrong physically with the mother. Nothing wrong physically with the child. And yet that's not because he's on row. Ironically, in the Casey decision, every element, every ruling in Roe, people think Roe limits abortion to the first trimester. Nope. Doesn't do that. Says it. Yeah, but it's not applied. Oh, then it's the second trimester. Look again. Well, then it's only for the... Nope. Look again. And as late as 1992, when they heard the Casey decision, the Supreme Court took all of the so-called restrictions in Roe and threw them out. For all intents and seatbelts, because for all intents and purposes, Roe v. Wade has already been dismantled. People don't understand that. But abortion on demand is still legal, particularly here in California, in any state that hasn't passed a regulation. But the reason is because of the versus Bolton decision, which empowers abortionists to make all abortion-related decisions. And that has had incredible significance for that day. And you know now, uh, you did a great job. Thank you again. Wonderful preface. But before that day, a doctor couldn't kill a baby. The reason that a doctor couldn't kill a baby was not only the laws of the 50 states, but because of the values of medical ethics, which those laws reflected. Doctors have always sworn to never kill a vulnerable human being, especially a baby in the womb. And explicitly, the Hippocratic Oath says, even, even if asked, I won't kill a, a vulnerable person, and I won't perform an abortion. So what? On January 20th, medicine itself 
was transformed. The killers are to be doctors who had always sworn to heal. Now they were assigned the role to kill. The implications now are reverberating through our culture. We need to examine that's the reason that we have our circumstances. Doctors are continuing to kill. And if Roe is addressed, we must make sure that Doe versus Bolton is addressed when we look at this Mississippi law. So it may sound complicated, but it's rather straightforward. And we can look at it deeper. But the fact is, is that these are twin decisions. They're of equal merit on that day. They were conjoined on that day. But the Supreme Court itself has already been dismantling Roe. It's Doe versus Bolton that still stands. And, you know, the irony, Brian, and maybe you can sort of unpack this for us a bit more after the break. The, the irony is that whether you're hearing about this from the abortionist point of view or from the pro-life point of view, we oftentimes either hear one or the other entirely ignored, which is largely the case of what's happened with Doe v. Bolton, and there seems to be different versions of the impact of these two decisions, not only from side to side, but (laughs) seemingly even from moment to moment. And I just wonder how much of an impact does that sense of ambiguity over the impact of Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton on the the broader abortion issue has when it comes to being able to address the problem that it created. The problem, of course, leading to the loss of more than 60 million lives in America. We'll talk about that a bit deeper. Brian Johnston with us today. Normally we say, of course, he is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, but he's also the author of a new book. The book is called Evil Twins, Doe, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. And uh, it's an education. I got to tell you, for all the years that I have been discussing this subject matter, we have had thousands of hours on this radio program looking at the issue of life. And it wasn't until Brian brought this to my attention that I was even aware of the impact of not just Roe versus Wade, but ultimately, of Doe versus Bolton. We'll continue our discussion with best-selling author Brian Johnston right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation with us today is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, also the host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. We are talking about... The recent research, hard work that Brian has done in putting together a new book called Evil Twins, Roe v. Doe, and really distills down the impact that these two companion decisions released at the same time on the same day, Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, and how it opened the gateway for medical killing in America. It's been going on for, my goodness, uh, almost 50 years now, well, 40, uh, 43 plus years. And uh, here we sit, or 42 years, and here we sit now uh, on the cusp of, of many attempts, successful, I might add, by local, state, municipalities um, making decisions to help strengthen protections for the innocent 
and yet there's so much more work that needs to be done. And Brian, that leads to a question, and that is, why is there so much confusion, not just on the impact of these two companion decisions from 1973, but why it seems as if sort of the story changes, no matter who you talk to, either on the abortionist side or even sometimes on the pro-life side, the understanding of these two companion decisions and which really had the greatest impact seems to be sometimes up for a debate. Why is that? Yes, you're kind of breaking up there, Craig, but you're exactly right. There is incredible and part of it is because of Roe v. Wade itself. Now, can you hear me? Yep, just fine. Okay, let me read you a couple of passages from Roe v. Wade that will stun you. And it's almost unbelievable, but let me, these are direct quotes from Roe v. Wade. I'm reading Roe v. Wade, for Kent U.S., page 189. Quote, the right to privacy does not include a right to do as she wishes with her body. Close quote. And then again, two lines later. A woman's constitutional right to an abortion is not absolute. Close quote. That's an exact quote from Roe v. Wade and Harry Blackman. But wait a second, the media doesn't tell us that. Wait, there's more. Here's a quote. This is a quote from 2013 by Justice Ginsburg, the most famous radical feminist to sit on the high court. She was asked in 2013 about Roe v. Wade, not like Wade, but specifically she said, the decision did not give a woman the right to choose. It offered the physician the right to choose to pursue his profession as he thinks best. It is not. It is. Close quote. So when you have the most famous and active radical feminist justice, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, something's not quite right in what our culture has been saying. And I can tell you, the story goes into why that is. But the fact is, is that Roe v. Wade was created, cobbled together by Justice Blackman. He admitted at the time, and you can read this, by the way, in the book, I now come to enjoy publishing in Kindle, because all of the connected footnotes, all of the original sources, you can click and read. Because this is pretty stunning when you realize the media has lied to us about Roe v. Wade. Word. In his book, The Abortion Papers, in 2005, he published stuff. This is all known. A, that Justice Blackman handed out his first draft. His first draft, several judges said, this is odd. Justice Powell said, this trimester system sounds like you're trying to make up your own laws. Blackman sent a note back. Well, I had to draw the line somewhere. Admitted at the time it was arbitrary. But of course, as you now know, there were two decisions. And as you look background, the fact is, is that what happened that day was the first time in Western civilization doctors were instructed to kill human babies. 
and not be prosecuted. It would not be under the shell of possible prosecution, is what he says in Bill v. Bolton. And why is it that feminists, I mentioned just one, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but all feminists don't actually like the real reading of Roe. They like that there's abortions out there, but that's not their goal. And this may shock you again. It's documented. I have the documentation. At the time of Roe v. Wade, it says that there were 40 Amici briefs filed by women's organizations. Now, that is not the St. Paul's Church uh, <laughs> Ladies Auxiliary. By women's organizations, you and I now know what that means. These are organizations that were very big in this figure. They've become a cultural theme. But even back in the 60s and 70s, there was a book, famous book, published by the Boston Women's Health Collective. Starting in 1969, they republish it every year. It guides women how to do their own abortions. Self-abortion, a very important goal for the true feminist. And the reason it's important is it allows a woman to decide herself whether or not she will be a mother. She has complete control. And that's exactly what you saw in Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not happy, or was not happy, rather. Roe v. Wade requires a physician to be involved. Basically, what Justice Blackman said, he took all the arguments from those feminist Amici briefs. And there are so many different arguments. You've heard them all. You know, the poor girls under pressure. Sometimes the parents don't want her to have the child. The boyfriend is bringing pressure. There's economic pressure. Uh, there is, and he throws in everything, because all of these Amici briefs had all sorts of reasons. So he throws it all into Roe v. Wade. But then he says, even though the choice is available and should be available, the woman herself does not have that choice. And it seems ironic. Why would he do that? She must get the abortion from a physician. And it's because they were asking for self-abortion. And thankfully, you might say thankfully, he said, I'm not going to have women going around aborting themselves. This is madness. He was very, very adept at protecting the medical profession. And what he wanted to do is make sure that these would be clean and neat, but that abortionists could do it whenever they wanted, and that there would be no prosecution whatsoever. It would be entirely based on their personal important distinction, because the feminists still do not like that. Feminists want to see, and you'll see it in the book, they want to see Roe v. Wade overturned, but they want the right to self-abortion. They don't want physicians involved at all. Ironically, even though they say that was the problem with back alley abortions, that's actually their goal. Their goal is to self-abort and make that legal. And as bizarre as it sounds, it is still their goal as a movement. They are looking forward to getting with physicians. They want to dispose of a human being, any consequence, 
and without having to submit to a doctor for permission. And they have an agenda for that. We talk about it in the book. So the fact that Roe v. Wade is there and that Roe v. Wade is, a, is a, an impediment that we have seen as pro-lifers, the real issue is how is it executed? On January 22nd, 73, the Supreme Court agreed, okay, all of these laws in all these states, we're taking them away. But still the question is, okay, but who's going to do the abortions? We're going to have the healing profession do the abortions. We're going to assign doctors and we're going to give them the parameters that they can make up as they see fit. That was an attack on the medical profession the values of Western Civ, because Western civilization believes that vulnerable human beings should be protected, and beings, vulnerable human beings, should be protected, and there was one profession that embodied that, and that was the medical profession, and the Hippocrates clarified that. That was removed. It was amazing the way there's this significant paradigm shift that really strikes at the heart of the Hippocratic Oath, that strikes at the heart of all of the reasons why most doctors, and I, I suppose it could be argued not all, because if it was all, then you wouldn't have doctors performing abortions, but most doctors got into the healing profession because they wanted to help humanity, because they wanted to bring about relief from pain and suffering and bring about healing. And it was always ultimate, do no harm. In the process of healing, do no harm. And yet there is this significant paradigm shift that takes place in the very foundation of the mores of the medical profession that allowed doctors to suddenly dispense with what had been historically, going back <laughs> literally millennia, the Hippocratic Oath that had driven that passion for doctors to cure and to do no harm, to suddenly say, yeah, well, now it's up to you. And if you don't have a personal problem with it, well, then it must be okay. And suddenly people, motivated not by healing but by money, are willing to take the steps to bring about death and destruction because what had been the guardrail, so to speak, related to the Hippocratic Oath, again, through millennia of understanding within the medical profession, was suddenly and deliberately set aside to bring us to where we're at today. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back to some closing remarks from Brian Johnson. I want to mention, by the way, the new book is available through Amazon. Uh, you can enjoy it on your Kindle by simply going to Amazon.com and to do a search for Evil Twins. Again, the book is called Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, newly available through Amazon.com. Its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Brian Johnston, who, of course, is host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. When we come back, we'll unpack a bit more about where all of this is potentially headed as our discussion continues. Right now, though, a quick look at Bay Area traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Brian Johnston with us today. Again, his new book, Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, newly available through Amazon.com. So we invite you to check it out. It is an education. It is an eye-opener because many of us, I think, uh, for many years that have understood the impact of 
Roe versus Wade have uh, have largely ignored um, what ultimately is the real villain here, and that is Doe v. Bolton. And as we mentioned before the break, it has completely undermined what had been the moral guardrails of the medical profession. And and toward that end, I guess the big question becomes as important as we've acknowledged brian the hippocratic oath is um, and how this runs so contrary to that um, talk to us a bit about where all of this is going i know that there's been tremendous advancements made we're seeing more and more states that are passing laws to do more to protect the innocent to protect the unborn but of course there's so much work that yet needs to be done well, that's exactly right, Craig. I'm excited because, just as we've known from the beginning, the right to life is a self-evident truth. Anyone would come about it. You know. Well, wait a second. That's, that's a human. If these were canine abortions, you'd be killing little puppies. So the fact is, is that this isn't hidden. This isn't, it's really the language of the media. It's the language of our opponents. And you're going to find out in the book, I'll just tease you a little bit. This is tied directly to Marxism, believe it or not, and it's Rupert. Who taught me that? I'm just going to leave that. You can read the book, and you'll find out how Marxism is tied directly to... But it's very important for people to understand the facts, really, about life in the womb. And I spent a lot of time on that, and one on my hero. He's one of my personal heroes. He was the founder of modern gynecology, and that is Dr. Horatio Storer from the 1830s. He was involved actively as a physician. He was a Boston physician. He was opposed in those days. Obviously, he was an abolitionist. But he, as a doctor, wanted to study childbirth, and he went to the U.K. Now, all listeners already know this, that the British so he was there in he was in the UK at Edinburgh studying medicine, studying childbirth. And slavery, not only was it not stopped, we were losing the slavery debate in eighteen sixty. We were losing. But not only had the Brits ended it long before they also ended abortion. In 1861, again, he was studying the human child in the womb. I've been studying. Edge of the, the cutting edge, if you will, of the Industrial Revolution, and science showed through the modern microscope they had witnessed mammalian conception. Up until if a child was born and quickening hadn't taken place, it was hard to prove that that child hadn't been alive. It, quickening was the, the scientific way of knowing that, hey, the baby kicked, the baby's alive. So if a child was killed after quickening, that was a crime. But before quickening, and that's what you're going to see in this new court case, they're saying 15 weeks, but the real question is these earlier-term abortions. It was Horatio Storer. Because England, when he was there studying childbirth, he's known as the modern, the founder of modern gynecology, by the way. And he fought when he came back. Slavery had come to an end. Then he went state to state, and he said, look, now you're protecting slaves who had not been considered human beings. 
But right now, my second patient in childbirth, the baby, that baby's not protected. The laws need to protect these babies. And he took the science that he had learned in the U.K. and the laws of the U.K. The Crimes Against the Person Act of 1861 was passed in the U.K. and protected children from conception. And they stayed in effect for more than 100 years. In fact, literally, up until 2019, uh, in the north of Ireland, the Crimes Against the Person Act was still in effect. But just as our laws has been whittled away by progressives trying to minimize the significance of that child. But Horatio Storr brought science and medicine and the law, the law that said you can't own a human being. They said that about slavery. The Brits said that about slavery. You can't own a human being. And you can't kill a human being you claim to own. And he applied that to the child in the womb. You can't claim that that's your pop. And you can't kill that unique human baby. So Dr. Horatio Storer and the whole chapter on him and on the site went through, he inspires me. And I think we need to know where those laws came from that were in 1973. There's a reason they were there. It's because of science, observable fact, and because the purpose of the law is to protect human beings that can't protect themselves. So there's many other chapters, but it's important that pro-lifers understand why this battle is here and what's being battled. What we're fighting for is the right for those who can't protect themselves to be protected. And, of course, if we're going to be effective at that, we need to understand not only what's at stake, but how the battle is enjoined, and most importantly, be prepared to be able to give an argument, to be able to stand on truth, on law, and and ultimately, as we've seen such tremendous strides over the last 30 years, um, we're moving, moving closer and closer 